Hey everybody, today is May 28, 2018, and you're listening to Human Factors Cast, episode 92. Today on Human Factors Cast, we're breaking down everyone's feelings toward automated vehicles, Uber's NTSB report, robot counselors, and more. If you've ever thought that Alexa might be spying on you, well, you might be right. Human Factors Cast starts right now. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Human Factors Cast. I'm your host this week, Blake Arnsdorf, joined by special guest Elise Hallett. Elise, say hello. Hello, everybody. <laughs> so Nick is taking some well-deserved time off, so Elise and myself will be holding down the HF Cast ship, bringing you everything UX and HF in the news, plus a very special interview. So for those of you who don't know, Elise is a Human Factors expert from a similar company that Nick and I actually work at. And Elise, you want to give a little intro about yourself? Sure. A uh, similar company. It's uh, actually the same one. Um, so my background is in medical human factors, and I've done some research in accessibility. But right now, I do a lot of human factors work in Department of the Defense Systems, um, as well as tinkering around still a little bit in the medical systems. Very um, cool. Well, Elise and I just spent the weekend in San Francisco uh, just getting to enjoy some of our family, attend some graduation ceremonies. But Elise, you told me before the show that you had a banter topic for today. So what do you, what's been going on with you? <laughs> um, so I don't know if you've ever experienced this with an iPhone, but if, if you've got your iPhone hooked up to the iCloud and your phone starts running out of memory, your phone does this wonderfully magical thing to clear up memory, it starts deleting things randomly. So I've been, I'm terrible at keeping up with technology um, and, you know, getting stuff off my phone. There's so much data that just accumulates all the time. Um, But recently, especially when I was going back up home to try and get touch with my family, try and order a lift ride, you know, anything, I just look at my phone and find out like, oh wait, it deleted all my contacts. Oh wait, it deleted half my apps. So that's just a fun thing that I'm experiencing right now. (laughs) Yeah, that was really strange because it sounded like your phone actually started making different and it sounded like from talking to you a little bit, Elise, that also it seemed like your phone was just making decisions on its own about what was okay to delete and what wasn't okay to delete. Did it give you any kind of like context for what it was going to do, or did you just magically find on your phone, hey, this is gone? Oh, I, I magically found that out on my own. But it seems to use recency. So if I haven't used an app for a while, then you know that would be the first to go. Um, but I guess it got really limited on space when it started deleting my contacts and all my calendar appointments um, because I just opened up my text messages one day and I started seeing just the raw numbers instead of contact names. Oh, that is no good. And one of the days I remember you showed me too that your calendar actually had morphed itself into multiple different calendars or some kind of strange UI element. Yeah, it was like the the app icon itself had shrunken to like half the size and it was all like jumbled and, and some of the um, names of the apps 
got all jumbled and scrambled on the screen, kind of like um, if you've ever sent that special effect text message, it's invisible ink, where all the letters go all dotty and, and such. So, like, that's what my app names looked like. It was so weird. Yeah, I, th- I honestly think because I've had similar weird issues with my iPhone and mine's like a like an iPhone 7. So it's not that old. But even some of the operating system stuff gets very clunky or I have to get rid of apps quickly. Like, I really think that they're starting to push people through their new updates to update your phone because it's just either nefariously or not. It's not handling the new software at all. And it's causing these kind of weird things like you're talking about. And I've definitely opened my phone up a few times after updates recently and noticed that all of my contacts are numbers and it doesn't like turn back immediately and some sometimes my calendar is way off uh and that's that might be because i'm like running a bunch of different like non-native apple apps like i'll run kind of google stuff instead of theirs and they get mad at me about that too that's blasphemy (laughs) yeah it's no good well just as a reminder before we get into the news that we still have a t-shirt contest going for the rest of this week until may ends. so between now and may 31st you can leave us a podcast review on the medium of your choice on whatever you listen to podcasts through. Send us an email at humanfactorscast at gmail.com with a screenshot of your review before 5 p.m. on May 31st. And let us know if you want a male-female shirt and what size. We'll pick winners on the 31st and get in contact with you if you have one. Uh, just a few upcoming events in the Human Factors world. So AHFE International 2018 is happening in Orlando, Florida, July 21st through 25th. Uh, Human Factors International 2018 in Philadelphia is coming up here around the corner in October 1 through 5. And then HFES Australia comes to Perth in Perth, Australia, November 26th to 28th. And like we've talked about, we may be having a little bit of a correspondent out there for us to give us a little bit of news at all of these events. So, Elise, this is weird for me because usually this is me reading this stuff. But this is the part of the show where Elise is actually going to read us the Human Factors news for the week. So this is where we talk about everything related to the field of human factors. This could be anything from medical, transportation, psychology, artificial intelligence, virtual reality, any of those things. You name it, as long as it relates to the field of human factors. So not Blake this week, but Elise, what's up first? Ah, well, what's up first is your worst Alexa nightmares are coming true. So what's the most terrifying thing you can imagine on Amazon Echo doing? Think realistically. Would it be something simple but sinister, like the artificially intelligent speaker recording a conversation between you and a loved one, and then sending that recording to an acquaintance? That seems pretty bad to me. Um, But that nightmare has actually come true. Um, So a husband and wife in Portland recently received a disturbing call from the man's employee. Unplug your Alexa device right now, said the voice online. You're being hacked. And that would have been scary enough. But then the thoughtful employee explained that he had recently received audio files containing a conversation between the couple. When they doubted him, the employee sent the files. Sure enough, the couple's Amazon Echo had shared a recording of a private conversation without the couple's permission. And it wasn't because of hackers. It was because of Amazon. So Blake, what are what are some thoughts? <laughs> oh man, so this is really strange because I remember we were talking about this in the bay with your parents. Like I think your mom mentioned it that it had been brought up that okay, the echo is listening 
and potentially dropping information to somebody without you even knowing it. And this is a perfect case of that. Now, just to be very clear, when the like blurb that we have here talks about that it wasn't actually hackers, it was Amazon, it's because the Amazon Echo has actually been misinterpreting sounds in the room for background noise to be wake words, such as like, listen, I'm not going to say a wake word because likely it'll set off either your device or a smart device in your uh, in your vicinity but like some wake word and it's interpreting that is okay i should start listening and i guess amazon's claim here and this one this one's kind of difficult to really understand who who's right or wrong is that it's actually saying that alexa does ask at some point like hey would you like me to send this to somebody that's not the command word because i don't want to give that on the podcast and send everybody's alexa going off uh but basically it's saying like okay it's catching a wake word in the background but it does have to send some confirmation confirmation for you to like do some action to send it to somebody or whatever it may be um so it's it's not necessarily a a straight hack but it is something to be definitely aware of especially if somebody has like an echo in the house so at least you and i don't really have one of these devices we haven't used one before and i i don't i don't really know if i'll use one in the future for this very reason because you never really know what it's listening to and how or what kind of information it might be picking up i mean what's your opinion on using these kind of smart devices in the home um i are on the side of caution with this kind of thing i mean reading this it's it's not that much different than a butt dial, right? You know, it, it accidentally sends information without the person realizing. Um, but in this case, it's the machine that's doing it, right? Instead of a person. So, you know, I think a lot of people hold more weight there because, you know, you blame the automation. Um, but there's always a, a trade-off, I think. And for these devices to work to pick up and respond appropriately, I don't really see any other way apart from listening all the time. But but that's the trade-off, right? And that's you know the choice that you have to make when getting one of these devices. I don't know, for me personally, that's the choice that I don't wanna make. So you know, I err on the side of caution and, and tend to steer away from these. Yeah, and I think it's important for like, because this story kind of, to me, blows a lot of this out of proportion. I mean, it is a, it is a really big deal that like they're, that Amazon's product is actually initiating a wake word that's not necessarily right and may or may not be sending information without your direct confirmation. That is a big deal. But something to keep in mind is like your your smartphone in your pocket, whether you're using a Google smartphone or an iPhone, it's doing the same thing. It's listening at all times, but it's listening same way, listening for a wake word and for you to give it some like kind of confirmation of what to do with you with what you've told it. Um, and I think there was a story at least maybe a year ago now that Nick and I also covered that was talking about with the iPhone using like sub frequencies that humans can't hear, but the actual phone will pick up and being able to tell it to do things. Right. So this is kind of it's not exactly a new phenomenon here that there is really a privacy concern when it comes to these like always listening devices. And I think at least you're right. Really, what way can we go to get around this? You kind of have to make the choice of does the convenience of having the device in the home so, like something like like this make a lot of sense or are you willing to make the trade-off like how much are you willing for it to be listening and maybe catch the wrong thing and send your employer something that they shouldn't be sending that you said about them right um for me in terms of the smartphone it's invaluable to me because it's as much as you'll hear me arguing with it as as time goes on i also use it for like setting timer setting reminders telling me to like get stuff from the grocery store or be at a 
certain meeting at a certain time. So there's a definite trade-off that I'm willing to make there. But when it comes to like the, the in-home thing where you're potentially using your Echo to order stuff off of Amazon or Google Home, like or maybe through the Express Shopping Center, I can see how that's a little bit different. And now you're there's even talk of bring, building in ads into these kind of systems too. So it's it's like you're you're now being targeted in your home with data that you're providing it versus just you know talking to something to set reminders for you. So it's kind of it's definitely a trade off. Mm-hmm, definitely, it kind of reminds me of research that I came across not too long ago where they were looking at um, devices in the car that were set like this. So they were always listening. And instead of you, you know, initiating navigation directions um, through some touch control, it was, you know, audio controlled. Um, But it got into a lot of questions of how this works when you have a passenger sitting next to you as well. um, And how it it differentiates, you know, when you're talking to the passenger versus having these controls. And, um, you know, so here when when you're having a conversation in your your private home with a loved one, um, you know, versus giving a control to a device, I think there's a lot of nuances still that are being worked out. Yeah, I think when it comes to voice technology, especially, or even self-driving cars, like we'll talk about in the next story, it's the idea is there and it makes a lot of sense. It's just the technology is not matured enough or, or for lack of a better way of putting it, I don't think that the, how we've implemented it, we've thought through all the possible failure points and what that's going to mean, like an extra person in the car. Or what if your Amazon Echo or Google Home is listening to you have a private conversation and a mistake happens? Like, how do we account for that? And I think it's only through these kind of like trial and error situations that we can really you know, learn how to use voice correctly. But as we'll see in the next story, um, actually, that has somewhat of a negative effect when we have these really adverse problems that happen. So at least you want to read the next one? Absolutely. Um, So the next one deals with trust in self-driving cars and how it has plummeted in the last six months. So Americans are generally pretty optimistic when it comes to new technologies, but there's one futuristic tech that Americans are getting more and more afraid of with each passing year, driverless vehicles. A whopping 73% of Americans don't trust autonomous vehicles, um, up from 63% in late 2017. Despite their potential to make our roads safer in the long run, consumers have high expectations for safety. Greg Brannon, AAA's Director of Automotive Engineering and Industry Relations, told Gizmodo in a statement. Our results show that any incident involving an autonomous vehicle is likely to shake consumer trust, which is a critical component to the widespread acceptance of autonomous vehicles. So that's a really important point that any kind of small thing that's happening with an autonomous vehicle that's negative is just going to obviously spike people's perceptions of it. And this is kind of an interesting conversation that I want to get your opinions on, Lise, because I'll I'll just quickly describe like a small conversation that Nick and I had had. But I didn't realize that when and we'll talk this is a little bit in the next story as well. But when that Uber crash happened that ended up like hitting a pedestrian and the person behind the wheel wasn't able to jump back in the loop quick enough to make any to take any like emergency precautions. I knew that there would be a definite like backlash against it and kind of a an over an overwhelming negative point of view of like self-driving cars just aren't ready. But it wasn't until I was listening to a podcast, I think it was a Joe Rogan podcast that I 
I really started to understand that people's perceptions are quite negative on to- on autonomous vehicles and that it's it's just not ready to be out and being tested on the roads and it should still be you know like enclosed road testing and things like that. So so from your perspective as like another human factors practitioner, what's what's really your take when you kind of see these negative events pop up? I mean, I think it links back to what's being covered with it, right? Um you know, you look at distracted driving and, you know, how many accidents happen when people are texting, when people are drunk driving. And, you know, those numbers are, are far greater than what's reported for autonomous vehicles. And yet people put so much blame on the autonomy, you know, I think partially because there's not a human to blame. You can't blame you know, someone who was under the influence or or distracted driving. It was the automation and how it should be perfect. And we seem to have this, um, this, uh, double standard between people and autonomy and, and expecting autonomy to be perfect. And, um, you know, with a lot of this testing, maybe, I don't know, maybe it is too public, but I, I feel like, you know, if, if one event happens and it's blown up in the media and then, you know, that's all anybody sees. So then they associate that with danger as opposed to, you know, all the instances where it's going right, all the things that they're fixing, how we're moving forward with this and and also not talking about the reverse of what we're trying to fix with the autonomy, how how, you know, human driving is um, in comparison yeah, and I think in this particular instance, now this it'll be different from another example I'll I'll try and give to play kind of devil's advocate here. But I think what a lot of people are not realizing or not made aware of, especially when it comes to the media and how it can can typically blow things out of proportion. I mean, there's there's nothing there's nothing that you can really say against it. I mean, this did cause like loss of life through an autonomous vehicle. Um, and, and that does, does definitely like bring us back to square one about how people feel about it. And I mean, even though it's only a, a 10% jump, I mean, it's a giant jump within a year from a 63% approval rating to like a 73% approval rating. And then even in this complete study, I mean, people are not just afraid of autonomous vehicles from a driving on the road with them standpoint. They're also afraid of them from the pedestrian and riding a bicycle, that kind of standpoint. How do you recognize an autonomous vehicle? Because at, at this point, our current concept of operations with them is that we will have a human operating behind them. Uh, but we'll get into some of the specific problems with that in that in this next story kind of from Uber. But the the overall concept of like being that much more afraid of autonomous vehicle implementation than people driving is I don't think we have anything at scale to compare it to, right? Like you gave great examples of like, well, what about people that are driving and texting? The amount of research that we have behind that is it's pretty it's pretty staggering that people just shouldn't be doing it yet. I, I don't think I can go driving at all and not see somebody on their phone driving at 65 miles an hour. Um, and then the same thing with like impaired driving from like a drugs or alcohol standpoint. I mean, we just don't have that kind of data to compare it to versus autonomous driving. Um, and I, I would wonder, it's just one of those things that we'll see over time, whether it's the next decade or the next two decades, we'll start to see trends and how that changes. And I would, I would venture to guess that it's going to create a deficit in those cases. You're not going to see as many driving-related accidents that are related to texting and driving or drinking and driving, any of that kind of stuff, as, automa- as automation gets rolled in. Um, but it, it is going to have to go through trials and tribulations. So I think it 
really does need to be tested in a much more, you know, closed environment. And that's tough to do because you need to have these things out on the road in real invi- real situations or else how can you improve the algorithm? So it's just such a double-edged sword. Um, but as people get more afraid of them, I think it makes it even worse. And it's it's only left up to companies like Uber or Lyft or anybody working on, on autonomous vehicles, but also um, people like Elon Musk to try and really rally around that, okay, yeah, we're running into problems with some of the autonomous testing that we're doing, but at the same time, that we are rolling in the changes and i think you alluded to that and that's that's one thing that i think companies have to do a better job of is really illustrating what they're doing to overcome the issues that come up in the media yeah that's a really good point just communicating the impact to the public um i don't know that controlled testing is completely beneficial with driving because i think in a controlled environment i think that you know driving would be really easy um but you have so many different variables like pedestrians jumping out in front of you with bicycles and and you know that video like watching it on loop is so heartbreaking you know watching it um and you know, it's, it is really, really unfortunate, uh, situation, but, you know, because of all the variability that I think comes in, especially when, um, transitioning from, you know, human driving to autonomous driving cars, um, you know, I think that transition is where the real danger comes in from a human factors perspective, because now you have, you know, the autonomy who's trying to respond to, you know, the humans who are doing all these random things. And um, like you said, you can't go on the freeway without someone texting um, or like being on their phone. So there's just a lot of variability that's introduced there that, you know, if it were completely autonomous, then they'd be able to control for that. They'd be able to handle that. Um, So I think the only way that we're going to work through some of these kinks and variables is through an uncontrolled environment. Yeah, and I guess the my kind of hesitation there is is you're right. You have to test these things in a real environment because there, there's obviously not enough data to feed and an algorithm to teach it enough there, that it's not as dangerous because it just is. But the the bigger thing that I guess I was confused about, and th- this next story really kind of made me understand what happened in this particular crash that we keep referring to from Uber. But I always thought like, well, if the automation can just take over then this shouldn't really this should be almost a non-issue like even if your your automated car is driving on the highway and humans are acting erratically in their cars it should be able to you know at least kind of make decisions based on what's going on in other cars but i think that's at a a higher level of automation that we're not at yet Mm -hmm. that that we're still trying to put still trying to work with this human in the loop model or forcing the human back into the loop model. So let's kind of jump into the next story and talk a little bit about just like kind of the concept that's going on right now. So if you will. Absolutely. So last week, the NTSB released preliminary findings for an accident back in March in which a self-driving Uber vehicle collided with a pedestrian. The pedestrian was killed. At 1.3 seconds before impact, the self-driving system determined that emergency braking was needed to mitigate a collision. The release says, according to Uber, emergency braking maneuvers were not enabled while the vehicle is under computer control to reduce the potential for erratic vehicle behavior. The vehicle operator is relied on to intervene and take action. The system is not designed to alert the operator. Over the course of the last two months, Uber has worked closely with NTSB. 
And as their investigation continues, they've initiated their own safety review um, of the self-driving vehicles program. So bringing on former NTSB chair Christopher Hart to advise them on their overall safety culture and look forward to uh, sharing more on the changes they make in the coming weeks. So this is definitely a good thing to see from Uber, right? Not only that they're obviously working with the NTSB, because if you guys have followed the stories we've covered the past, I think, three weeks, uh, Elon Musk actually removed Tesla from the from working with the NTSB because of kind of the time constraints and some of the problems that it was going to like re- they were going to have to rely so much on waiting for finding out what the outcome of, of the wreck was and stuff like that. So it, it's kind of good to see that. Not only is Uber really going through the process with the NTSB, but also pulling on uh, former board members to really try and advise their overall like safety culture, like the kind of blurb talks about. So, Lisa, I've heard you talk a good bit as we have in conversation about like how problematic it can be of can be trying to bring an operator back into the loop of a situation where they just haven't been in. So, tell me a little about a little bit about your thoughts of kind of like how how autonomous vehicles are designed now and how this kind of may have been destined to happen. Sure. So um, a lot of research has gone into a concept called situation awareness, um, which is you know traditionally broken down into three levels for those who are less familiar with this concept. Um, so level one, the very basic is perception, understanding, or um, you know just perceiving elements in the environment. Level two is comprehension, so making sense of those elements. And then level three is projection, using those elements and your understanding to be able to project into the future. Um, and each of these are are based off each other. So you can't project into the future unless you have an understanding of what's going on and you can't have an understanding unless you're perceiving what's going on. So they kind of build on each other. And that takes time. So when you're engrossed in an environment, in a situation, you're building up situational awareness all the time because you're actively perceiving all this incoming information um, and you know, using that to to project what's going to happen in the future, anticipate you know what the next move is, so you can you know stay ahead of it and, and act accordingly. Now, if you take someone out of that situation, you know humans are traditionally very very bad at trying to monitoring monitor something that they know is going pretty well. Um, you know, you stare at you know, paint drying on a wall and it's kind of the same thing. Like, you know, the paint's going to dry. So you just stop paying attention to it. You just let it do its thing. And, and they say that, you know, after about 30 minutes of monitoring a task like this, um, you know, vigilance decreases. So you're not as active, um, in the situation. You're not as active in perceiving, uh, information and, and understanding the context. So then, you take someone who's in an autonomous vehicle and say, here, monitor this vehicle that, for the most part, behaves according to how we we um, have designed it. And you compare that with someone who is actively driving. So when I'm driving, because I know I'm going at high speeds, I'm in control of the vehicle, I'm constantly monitoring everyone around me. But if I'm you know, a passenger, like say I'm taking a lift and I'm sitting in the back seat, like I don't have to pay attention to what the lift driver is doing. I just trust that the lift driver is going. And you know, so I'm not bringing in all that information the same way. Um, you know, so that's 
kind of the same metaphor here where you've got this tester who's supposed to be sitting in, you know, this autonomous vehicle asked to, you know, jump into a situation as soon as something wrong happens. Well, how do you jump into a situation if you're not bringing in all this information and using it to project ahead of time so that you can act accordingly? Um, so it takes time for someone who, even if you're alerted, to perceive all that information, understand what that information is trying to tell you, and then act accordingly. So, I mean, this Test. I, I hear a lot of news coverage blaming the tester. How could the tester not have um, been paying attention? But, you know, I think anybody in that situation, just based off of what we know about human capabilities, would act the same way. And um, it takes a while to, to respond. And, you know, so it's kind of doomed from failure, you know, in this when this situation would have happened. Yeah, and I think it's important for people to understand. I mean, I know in the human factors community, especially um, in, in the aviation context, like uh, situation awareness is a really big topic and you learn about it like we learned about it in grad school. But it's I don't think that's something used in typical like news nomenclature or all over the place. And so when you it, and when you start hearing them, a lot of like news outlets or articles blaming kind of the the human operator behind this i mean it's kind of analogous to when when i I think it was in the most recent story where there was like a mishap about uh like a, a nuclear thing in hawaii or an alarm going off in hawaii right where it was a lot of people blaming the operator when it was in all honesty a bad system design that led to a series of issues that an operator committed right and i think it's something similar here i I don't think the concept of operation that we're trying to really force automated vehicles into is what's going to ultimately work because i mean if you if if we kind of go back and just look through the original kind of blurb that elise read the thing that I was kind of alluding to in the last article was that at this 1.3 seconds before impact, the self-driving car det- or self-driving system determined that the emergency braking was needed in order to mitigate a collision. However, this Uber emergency braking maneuvers are not enabled while the vehicle is under computer control to avoid potential erratic vehicle behavior. Well, in this case, it's one of those times where you need that erratic vehicle behavior to happen even if it's jarring for the person that's riding in the car because in this in this instance it's the only thing that could have prevented loss of life in terms of when the car hit the pedestrian potentially there's no guarantee there either Um, and i totally understand like uber's point of view here they're trying to provide the best ride possible but i think this is this is just an instance where the, where people don't have enough time to jump back in the loop and perceive what's going on, like Elise said, and then understand it, plus make some kind of decision as fast as possible. I mean, that can take seconds, which you just don't have in this situation at all. So I, I just I, I have to like I'm, I know I'm harping on the point that this like this system just doesn't really work. But if we're going to see autonomous vehicles really implemented in the world and fully operating i think we have to get to upper levels of like automation systems where it's taking the the driver out of the loop but it really relying on the underlying automation to let the car drive and then developing safe or fail safe modes that either like pull the car off of the road if something's going to fail or uh, doing enough research to understand like in all these kind of 
collision possibilities, which takes a lot, a lot of research and a lot of work and a lot of really just projection to even come up with. But I think that's really going to what's going to be um, the real should be the really the focus of kind of autonomous driving, because I, I don't know any other way to get an operator back in the loop fast enough. Not in 1.3 seconds. Yeah, not in 1.3 seconds. If even if you had, I don't know, you'd have to have, you'd have to have a lot of seconds ahead of time to make any kind of real decision aids. Um, I, I don't know. I'm one of those people that really believes in autonomous vehicles. I think it could potentially save a lot of lives, and I, th- I think that there's a a real interesting conversation to be had with this like kind of development of smart cities i've talked about this with nick on the podcast before and it's it's the idea of not as many people owning their own singular cars anymore but now your your city is kind of providing a for lack of a a different competitor at this point providing kind of like teslas that are able to drive around that are electric that either that are kind of like buses that are like that that come and pick a bunch of commuters up and take them to work and so it's it, there's not as many people on the road at the same time it's just kind of really taking autonomous vehicles to the next level like outside of just an everyday driver trying to mitigate around different human drivers but really like working as a cohesive system that's a long way away but i think that um, when incidents like this happen it kind of leads me to believe that yes it's awful and i i don't like seeing anybody get hurt for any reason when it comes to any kind of advanced technology and it's it's a cost that i think is a lot of times too high but the only way to kind of get away from this mode of thinking that we have that oh we could just stick somebody in the car who is who has potentially been riding around in this car for multiple trips, never had any kind of problem, has been able to do other things like listen to a podcast, be on your phone, not had any previous experience to tell them like, oh, I think I really have to pay attention to what's going on here just in case. And then expect them all of a sudden that there's a giant emergency and I've got to figure out exactly what to do. I just, I don't think that's ever going to be possible. Not in the, not with the current technology we have, unless we start like putting chips in people's brains to talk to the computers. And that's, that's a whole another conversation. All right. Elise is shaking your head at me. I guess that's a bad idea. Uh, but <laughs> regardless, uh, I wanted to take a quick second to say thanks to our friends at Google Blogspot. Engadget, Gizmodo, Science Daily, and the NTSB for all of our stories this week. If you want to follow along with us on social media, or you can join our Slack for the links to the original articles. So at least we've got kind of a fun one, a little more lighthearted to bring things back up. What's up next? This is a fun one. Um, Topic here, could robots be counselors? Early research shows positive user experience. New research has shown for the first time that a social robot can deliver a helpful and enjoyable motivational interview. Um, So in this news article, new research has shown for the first time that a social robot can deliver a helpful and enjoyable motivational interview, or MI, which is a counseling technique designed to support behavior change. Participants in a University of Plymouth study praised the non-judgmental nature of a humanoid NAO robot as it delivered its session, with one even saying they preferred it to a human. The study also indicated that the robot achieved a fundamental objective of MI as it encouraged participants who wanted to increase their physical activity to articulate their goals and dilemmas aloud. Lead academic professor Jackie Andrade explained that because the NAO robots are perceived as is non-judgmental. Robots may have advantages over more humanoid avatars for delivering virtual support for behavioral change. 
So I, I don't know about you. What do you think about having a robot as a counselor? It did, I'm, su- I'm really surprised at what they got out of the research, right? That people were actually feeling more comfortable because they weren't feeling they, they were getting judged from the specific NAO robot. Because I, I would expect from just an outsider looking in, no like scientific basis behind this, but pure opinion, I would expect the opposite. I would expect people to, it, maybe the judgmental part, not so much, but I would expect them to feel uncomfortable talking to a robot. And again, it could be the imagery that they use in this particular article. It may not be representative of the actual NAO robot that they use for this study. Um, but I think it's really cool that that was what they found. Uh, and it makes me makes me wonder what the future of kind of robotics is Uh, because a lot of the times we'll talk about robotics in the sense of being in the industrial setting or even even like as like helping aids throughout the house or if you want to get to the asimov level kind of like a a companion in some senses for like the elderly or stuff like that Uh, but this is not the first time that nick and i have brought this up on the show where you're using robots or AI style technology to talk to people. And before we've seen this from Facebook and a chat bot that was trying to identify like through, through Facebook postings and stuff like that with somebody suicidal and did they potentially need help or somebody to talk to. Uh, but we've also seen this in kind of a therapeutic setting with a chat bot as well. Uh, so I, I, I'm both surprised and unsurprised by this, but from your perspective, I mean, would you feel comfortable talking to a robot about anything, whether it was, you know, a motivational interview or not? I have no idea to be perfectly honest. I mean, I think part of the thing that makes, you know, counselors, you know, special and and unique in their job is their ability to empathize. And, you know, here, but, you know, at the flip side, we know that people also come in with biases and you can be trained. Um, and, you know, even with all your training may still come in and, and have those, those biases or expectations that I don't know, may, may taint the session. And, and so here we have a robot that addresses that somehow. I'm, I'm not sure. I mean, I, I'm not going to lie. I don't know if you saw this robot when we were walking through the Oakland airport, but it basically stands in front of like this one restaurant when you first go through the security gate and it like leads you to a table like it takes the place of a hostess. And personally, I get really creeped out by it to the point where I'm actually walking as far around it as possible because there's just something about it that kind of creeps me out like I don't know if I go to a restaurant then I want to interact with a person and and you know so I I don't know how I would react in a counseling session I don't know if you could you know let go of those biases that you have you know with robots and you know get in this zone where I don't know you're in the session just talking and it's it's very interesting so again, to kind of reiterate the methodology here, so a motivational interview or an MI is a technique that involves a counselor supporting and encouraging someone to talk about their needs for change. So I want to exercise more, and here's the reasons that I want to do that. I want, I don't know, I want to be able to run a mile or something like that. And typically, when it's when it's a human or in this case a robot, the interviewer is mainly there just to evoke conversation about change and commitment, right? So the robot was programmed with a set of script scripts designated to elicit ideas and conversation topics on how someone could in this in this particular study increase their physical activity 
And now kind of like Elisa's alluding to, there was an adaption period for people. It wasn't just like they sat down, even knowing that this was a study, they sat down and were like, oh, this is just a robot telling me these cool things from a motivational perspective to get me to do stuff. Great. No, there was a little bit of, you know, this is an unusual experience. It's The robot's not even particularly life-size. It's quite small. It's only like as big as a transformer you know it's not very big um but what they found in the study is that over over time as people were introduced to the robots through different sessions or as the session went on they were able to rate their experience afterwards and they found that it was enjoyable helpful and interesting and they were especially glad that they could hear themselves kind of talk out loud and think through thoughts as the robot kind of elicited different responses and gave them kind of feedback uh and again these were just scripts that it was kind of running and giving very basic like oh you should do this or you should make this change here's how you could potentially do it um and the but the biggest thing that they pull out of this right was that people really liked interacting with the robot because of what they felt that there was no judgment being made um which can happen when you're dealing with a human being i mean there and i'm there i am in no way making any kind of statements towards like counselors or anything but everybody has a bad day sometimes you you go into your job and you're just not 100 percent. maybe someone's able to tell from your face that you're left letting some kind of judgment seep out and in this case a robot wouldn't be able to do that it would only have x amount of program things that it would say and there's no particular facial expressions that it's giving off to convey any kind of judgment um, so i could see how that could be how it could be a helpful thing for people right if you're if you're trying to go through a big change in your life like trying to exercise more do more physical activity um sometimes it can be daunting to even talk about and trying to get go through a motivational interview with potentially somebody who's who may be judgmental for whatever sets of reasons uh i would rather talk to a robot in this case what i think would be more interesting and i'm, I'm pretty sure this is definitely a follow-up study for them would be okay great so people are more willing after kind of some adaption to understanding like this is an unusual experience but it's enjoy. At, at the end of it, I find it enjoyable, and I, I found that I wasn't being judged, so hopefully I'll be able to implement these kind of interventions that the robot was suggesting to me. But I would really like to see, like, okay, do they actually do... Do they actually put the... Uh, things into practice for physical activity more than they would if it was a human? Is there any difference? So how compliant they are with the robot versus a human as a counselor? Yeah, because I don't know, because sometimes novel interactions with with different things like robots or like with chatbots, it's it can be just that it can be like a novel interaction that you're having. And so you're you're like, oh, yeah, that was cool. That was great. I feel better after doing that. I feel like I can do the things that we talked about. Um, but at the same time, I think what's important is kind of longevity follow up with these people. Did they actually implement any of the strategies they talked about with the robot versus with a counselor? Um just those kind of things. I, I feel like that's a more meaningful indication of how people feel about the experience with a robot than just like, oh, it was kind of weird, but I got a lot out of it and I liked it. In comparison to a human, I think I liked it better. Yeah, that's a really interesting point because one of the things I was wondering was, um, is it just the, the surprise factor? You know, they stick me in a room with a robot and I expect it to be weird, but 
you know, it, it wasn't so because it exceeded my expectations. You know, I'm rating it more positive, but how that works over time. Um, it's interesting. Another thing that I was thinking, too, um, going back many, many years to my psychology classes in undergrad, um, but thinking about how often you there's, you know, kind of a superficial thing that that someone's experiencing, um, you know, how how we can expand these scripts, you know, if we do have robots in some of these roles to pick up on, um, you know, subtleties that are indicating, you know, either something deeper, something different, um, you know, to, to kind of provide that, that um, more holistic approach to getting someone help. Yeah. And I think that's a really, really great point is what can we, what are all the tools we have in the toolkit and does something like robotics or chatbots and AI, does it add extra tools to the protect practitioners like toolbox that they can apply to like always be able to interact with people, even though when they can't necessarily see them face to face, or is there some intermediary and then is do those kind of extra tools like an AI system or robot uh, capture enough information from somebody to present the the doctor with like extra things to think about or like hey the patient's kind of responding well to these things that we we saw through the chat bot or through the robot here's maybe interventions we should take from here uh, so that's a pretty interesting point of view at least all right so we've got one more story let's go ahead and get into it let's do it see what the world is searching for with the updated google trends so google trends has become a key part of journalistic storytelling giving reporters everywhere an insight into search trends across the world last week google updated google trends with new features simpler navigation and more ways to explore data and stories around one of the world's biggest journalistic data sets many of the changes are based on feedback from trends users google's already working with journalists closely across emerging technologies as part of the google news initiative partnering on innovative projects and building new tools for data journalism they're actively seeking journalistic feedback or journalist feedback to ensure updates are providing features that work for the industry. So, what what do you what are some takeaways for you, Blake? Honestly, I just like the fact, and I think we're all well aware that Google kind of, for lack of a, a bad pun that I'm about to make, they set they definitely set trends in the industry of how we work with different partners, right? So that this story really presents like not only have they made like updates to their UI and they're really trying to hone in on how to present more journalistic integrity in the stories that they're showing on not just like Google News, but also throughout trending uh, trending news. But I think the biggest takeaway here is the user centered design that they're approach they're trying to take especially with a specific journalist uh in my or specific kind of profession in mind in this case being journalists because not only have they made these kind of changes through the google news initiative but a lot of this as you read through this specific article from google's blog is really fueled by like journalistic needs so trying to escape the the never-ending fight for getting away from the fake news or trying to understand the integrity of stories that they're finding and using or sources they're finding and using and then also being able to have tools that make data visualization you know easy to easy to use and review but also make sense at a quick glance right because nick and i have talked about this before actually we talked about with brian a couple weeks ago in our uxpa boston wrap-up and that's data visualization and how 
a lot of times you'll get a lot of these data visualizations that are very, very difficult for the layperson to uh, to understand, much less a, a trained scientist. Uh, so taking taking and using these kind of different trend analyses and then breaking them into you know ways that are very easy to break down. Actually, looking at their their site now i mean they're they're using a lot of very simple and very like kind of highlightable maps that show you where people are thinking about specific topics in the u.s and across the world um, and it makes it super simple now to even search or find a topic on the news uh google trends is something i actually haven't used before have you Elise? No, I haven't. And I actually found it really interesting to learn that journalists are, you know, using this tool to understand search trends. Like, I had no idea. Yeah, it, it's it's something that I'd never thought about either, but I'm sure it's really, really powerful in that respect, too, because I can't imagine the 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 metric tons of data that are going through google at all times during the day i'm sure at this second it's much like that um and then being able to what i'm assuming is happening is it's breaking down trends based off where your location is coming from too because a lot of the stuff right now is having to do what's going on with what's going on in america as well as the fifa world cup that's going on right now so picking out bigger world events um but the the layout and the way to be able to kind of interact with the data is very very simple and it's a lot easier than i think a lot of kind of like the Google Analytics dashboards have been in the past. So I'm sure from journalists or anybody who uses trends, the update is worth taking a look at. Um, if you haven't had a chance to like dive in or anything like that, you can definitely find all the stories on our social media or on our in our Slack channel where we post all this stuff every week. Uh, so at least do you have any kind of wrap up thoughts for this particular story? Uh, no, it, I'm going on Google Trends right now to figure this out because this is such a cool tool (laughs) all right guys so that's going to wrap up our human factors in the news portion of the show now typically we would jump into it came from reddit but this week we have a special treat for all of our listeners i've got an interview that nick and woodrow recorded last week from our connection that woodrow made at kai this year Uh, this is with felipe duyan poilin human factors engineer in the aviation section of bombard j so without any further ado here's nick and woodrow and their interview with phil so we're joined here by felipe doyan poilin and uh he works at bombard aerospace sector in the aerospace sector i'm also joined by woodrow gustafson and uh, blake arnsdorf maybe joining us a little later but uh welcome to the show philippe hey welcome guys uh, thanks for having me so um, we have you on the show because Woodrow actually went to Kai 2018 and uh, met up with you and asked you if you wanted to be on the show. Um, and so we're basically going to air this as, as part of our uh, community outreach section to kind of see what other people are doing in Human Factors. And I have to admit, uh, if you've listened to the show, you know that uh, both Blake and I are kind of lacking on the aerospace section, and we kind of wanted to bring in sort of this uh, alternate perspective. So, um, Philippe, can you just tell us kind of what you do over there at Bombardier? Right. So um, I work at Bombardier Aerospace, so uh, we design and build aircrafts. Um, The division I'm working with is um, product development engineering. So our job is to design new aircrafts. Uh, everything from clean sheet design to uh, modification. So we really uh, design, specify, build it, then we certify the aircraft, and then we send it to production, at which point uh, we do a new program again. So that's why, uh, that's why, I'm, uh, that's what we're doing. Um, the, 
I was able to work on two programs uh, since I joined the company in uh, 2013. Uh, I work on the C-Series and I work uh, now, I'm working right on the Global 7000, uh, which is a, a private jet. Um, uh, aircraft design spans, you know, somewhere around five to ten years, starting from, you know, initial design of the aircraft up to suppliers uh, selection and then uh, verification of your requirement and everything and then certification. Okay, so, you know, it's a, it, it spans a long, um, long amount of time uh, to go from design to certification. Um, I joined a company uh, starting in 2013. And I've been doing certification ever since. So we certified the C-Series aircraft. And now that it's over, we're certifying the Global 7000 aircraft. So, you know, if you see the uh, design life cycle of the aircraft, um, I joined later in the uh, life cycle of the program. So I'm doing mostly certification at this moment. And the goal of aircraft certification for human factors aspect really is to show that the flight deck equipment is able to support the pilot task, that the pilot ah. is able to, you know, safe, uh, to fly safely from uh, the origin airport to the destination airport, uh, that it's easy to understand, he knows what's going on. If ever there's a, uh, a failure or a normal event, you know, he's able to detect it and complete the procedure and do a diversion and then complete safe landing. Um, so that's really the goal of the certification is to show that, you know, your your fly deck is, is, um, is easy to use as a good usability and uh, support the pilot tasks really during a, during a, during the flight. That's a, that sounds, uh, that sounds pretty cool. I, I do want to back up really quick though, just to kind of get a general sense of who you are and where you come from. So if you want to kind of let us know like what your education background is, um, and sort of how you got into the field of human factors to even begin with. Yeah, right. That's, that's a very good question. Um, I have a scientific background, so I did my, I did my undergrad studies in uh, physics at, um, uh, in the science faculty. And then when I completed my undergrad, um, I knew I wanted to continue at graduate level, uh, master or PhD level, but I didn't want to continue uh, doing physics. Uh, you know, I was doing quantum mechanics and I was like, you know, I want to try something else. And so um, I started um, start asking around. Um, I, like doing, I like doing software development. I like, um, I always add a sensitivity uh, versus design. And and the user interface design. And so I started asking around the people on, on these subjects. And, you know, from conversation to conversation, um, I got uh, in touch with uh, Professor uh, Jean-Marc Robert from uh, Polytechnique, uh, Polytechnique Montreal. Um, and he ended up being my thesis advisor. Um, and this is where, you know, I started reading his research paper and I was just fascinated that you could research and design Front, uh, front end interface to you know simplify the user task and understand what the user is trying to do and how you're supposed to do it. Um, and so I was just fascinated by this research and this is where I got in touch with him and I said, can I just, can I join your research group? This is what I want to do with the rest of my life. And I, this is how I started. So I went to a Polytechnique, it's the engineering school in Montreal. It's part of the uh, uh, industrial uh, department. And I did, I did my PhD uh, under his supervision. Uh, I started my PhD in 2010, and I was lucky enough at this time to get a scholarship from uh, from Bombardier Aerospace in the Human Factors team. Um, so what we got, so that offered me the opportunity to apply my 
PhD research on flight deck design. And um, so the scope of my PhD was to study visual clutter of uh, flight displays. Okay, so the story there is that, you know, on your primary flight displays where you have your airspeed tape, your altitude tape, and your uh, virtual horizon, and your uh, uh, guidance for flight. And so we just tend to, you know, to put just more and more information, all uh, you know, try to put uh, more, just this more indicated uh, um, uh, this instrument or try to add, um, you know, we always try to add, I guess, additional readouts and labels and the um, FMS source and all that stuff. So at, at one point, your display just gets cluttered because there um, there's too much information or information as is poorly, poorly presented. And so my research, really what I try to do is try to show the effect of visual clutter on the pilot performance. And so I got to design three primary flight displays and I changed the level of visual clutter between the three. So I had a very low visual clutter display, it was basically a black and white display, like no color, just basic information. And I had very high clutter display uh, that looked like um, Jules Verne, um, Jules Verne uh, uh, novel. Um, it was a steampunk interface. Or something oh, right, like yeah. Um, <laughs> yes. And I had the medium clutter level, which is, you know, it, it resembled what you would find in a, a usual uh, primary flight display in the aircraft right now. And so I asked my pilot to complete the same landing. So they had to, uh, to complete the landing, an instrument landing, using each of these three displays. And then I record their performance. So um, turns out uh, um, the objective performance, so their technical performance to respect the flight path, um, that was basically the same. So I, I didn't find any uh, noticeable difference between the between uh, the level of visual clutter. But everything related to subjective perception, uh, mental workloads, or uh, uh, appreciation of, the, of your display, I mean, that these results were staggering. Um, this is where I saw that uh, both the low clutter display and the high clutter display had higher workload level than the medium clutter display. So what it means is that um, when you have too much information or too little, you just have to work your way through it and you have to uh, put more attention and more concentration just to be able to figure out what do I need to look for? Where is the information? Uh, where is the information that I need? Um, how? What is the expectation I can get for that display? And so that's why the, I guess the medium color display, which is the acceptable level, um, had low workload and uh, best uh, subjective perception. Um, so really, so that, it's yeah. different. It's really subjective type things. Yeah, so that really gives us a good sort of insight into sort of your background and where you come from. So it makes sense that you're continuing in the aer aerospace uh, area of expertise here. And uh, I just kind of want to jump back here. So present day, you're working on sort of the certification process and that you're kind of ensuring that the, um, the tasks of the pilot are met on the flight deck. And I'm wondering, sort of in this certification process, what kind of, what kind of uh, human factors methodology are you using on a daily basis? Are you um, 
are there like checklists that you're ensuring that the standards are met? Um, are you performing any sort of heuristic analyses on these flight decks? Do you have a set of heuristics that you use? Uh, these types of questions um, are the things that come to my mind, at least with, uh, with, with the certification process. Can you speak to any of that? Right. Um, so the method that we use to show compliance, uh, it's usability testing. You know, that's the best method to show that your system works and the pilot, the user in this case, is able to understand what's going on. Um, so we design usability tests and we do that. Um, we have, you know, I guess somewhat complex scripts, but basically we ask the pilot, um, a two-man crew, to go from one airport to another airport to do a flight. And during the flight, we inject failures or we inject events or we simulate an ATC that's asking him to do a diversion or, you know, try to do, um, to, to inject non-normal event as part of the scenario. And so we'll, we'll, we look how the pilot understands what's going on, is he able to understand what he's supposed to do, and is able to complete, uh, to complete um, um, his, his task adequately. Um, so it's usable to testing, and then we measure workload. We have workload measurements during that, uh, during the dissimulations, and this is uh, this is what we base um, um, our test reports on. We also no. do a lot of uh, observation of uh, human errors. So whenever during during this flight, uh, you know, there's a uh, pilot will do an error, uh, select the wrong control, or or uh, there's a, um, um, a wrong data entry, for example. Uh, we observe is is the pilot able to detect that there was an error going on, and he's able to correct from it. And so that's also part of our analysis is really the number of error that we observe, pilot detection, pilot correction, and the impact on the aircraft. Um, so these are the, uh, I guess, the um, most important method that we're, uh, that we're using for uh, aircraft certification. That's, uh, that's really cool. Um, it's really cool to, to hear that how some of these methods are actually being used in, in uh, cockpit design. One question I did have about that is uh, your pilots, are you using purely expert pilots? Or do you have kind of a mix of novice and experts? Right. So that's um, that's one of the challenges that we get. Um, so uh, we have the Bombardier uh, Flight Test Center. Uh, so all these are development aircraft, uh, developmental aircrafts. So the aircraft is not not ready for customer at the moment. So we test with our flight test pilots, and flight test pilots are mostly former military pilots. So they're very knowledgeable of the systems. They're very knowledgeable of the aircraft dynamics, and they're very knowledgeable of um, uh, non-normals, non-normal uh, procedures. So they're very closer to what you call expert pilots uh, in this case. Um, we also try we also try whenever that's possible to have a few product would call production pilots. So production pilots are Bombardier pilots and they're there to do uh, aircraft deliveries. So they deliver the aircraft to, the, to customers and they sometimes do some uh, pilot training. Um, so they give us a really good feedback or a good uh, understanding of what we should expect from our end user at the end, you know. Um, um, so we try to do uh, some kind of a mix uh, between the two, so uh, production pilots and flight test pilots. Um, but yeah, in the end, you know, we, we test with, uh, with the, the pilots from the company. And so you kind of mentioned that this is one of the challenges that you have is that you're working with just these expert pilots. Are you, do you experience any other challenges um, as a human factors a practitioner in your job um, that kind of 
that, that you have to overcome on a daily basis as well? Or is it just um, predominantly the access to users? Uh, I would say, I guess, one of the challenges, and that's one point interesting for any um, young young people listening or uh, for your audience, um, human factors, you know, we do flight deck design. So we're the user of, of all the systems, you know, because we have to interface with the hydraulic system, we have to interface with the landing gear system, we have to interface with the flight control systems, and um, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so one of the challenges we get is really having a good understanding of all these systems and being able to reach out to the system specialist whenever there's a problem or there's an issue during one of your tests. Uh, so that's something that, um, uh, that I got to learn um, during the first year here, uh, really getting to know everyone in the company, what are the system and how they work and how do the, do the system works. So really having to interface with uh, the different specialists and um, getting myself a good knowledge of all the different systems behavior and being able to explain to explain it to the pilots. So I guess that's the uh, other challenge that we get. Um, so it's not really related to um, user testing or anything. It's really related to, I guess, the core of your job, just finding your way around uh, in, the, in the company and really getting to know the aircraft uh, inside, inside out. And what I observed during, you know, during these years, the more I learn on the aircraft, the more I learn on the systems, the better my tests are and the better my test results are. Because this is where really you can um, give um, the best return to your pilots and having the most efficient findings during your tests. Otherwise, you're just, I guess, looking at the pilot pushing buttons and there's light going on and you, and you, you, know, you, you, you can't make sense of it. So really getting to know your system, getting how the avionic works is really how you, you will be able to make the most relevant findings at the end on the usability side of things. Yeah, I absolutely have to agree with that, at least from my perspective. As human factors practitioners, you know, as we get more uh, involved in the domains that we study, we oftentimes become almost a novice user in our own way, right? We lack the expertise that they that that our users have um, over you know, however many years they've been doing this, but we sort of understand the system and we're kind of that uh, translation piece between what needs to be there and what the user needs. So it's really it's really good to hear that that is also the case um, or, or that somebody else shares that sentiment with me. Uh, so as we kind of wrap this up, I just want to, obviously you're pretty successful in what you do and um, just want to kind of talk to you about if we have a, a lot of younger listeners, junior listeners who uh, are potentially thinking about getting into the field of human factors and and kind of are struggling with, you know, where to go and, and what kind of advice to take and who to listen to. I was just wondering if you do, do you have any sort of parting advice for some people looking to break into the field of human factors from your perspective? Um, I guess the, the best thing is really to, to get out there, um, build Build project, build your portfolio, try to design system, try to create front-end design. Uh, this is how you will learn how to do front-end design. This is how you will learn how to do usability testing. And this is how you will gain experience. Um, for 
I guess the aeros um, aerospace aspect of things. Um, there are a lot of resources out there on aircrafts and aircraft design, and there's a lot of video just on YouTube that you can uh, listen to how to program your flight plan and uh, how the pilot deals with uh, with non-normals event. So you can also also uh, look at that. But more generally, if you're interested in human factors and you want to break into the field. Uh, don't be shy. Get in touch with people. Get in touch with uh, with the specialists. Just write them about your enthusiasm, and they will get back to you. And I'm sure um, you know. I guess this is the common feature of human factors uh, practitioners. Um, it's this uh, empathy toward the end user, and we try to we, we tend to show a lot of empathy and understanding uh, toward um, toward our users, and so. Uh, whenever I get an email from a young student, just telling me how excited he is about 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 the, uh, about the field and the different design that he, that, that he just made, you know, um, I just get back to him and try to do uh, the best that I can to to get in touch with this uh, with this person. So this is what I would suggest to um, to your listeners. That's awesome, Phil. Hey, uh, just one quick question for you uh, as we're about leaving. Um, how cool is it to if you when you walk on a plane while you, when you're going somewhere? And you look in the cockpit and you know that you had uh, you were able to actually um, help those pilots. You actually helped to create a better system for them. Um, how, how cool of a feeling is that? Oh, that's uh, <laughs> I guess that's one of the best part of my work, really. It's when you get in the aircraft and you're able to just look at the flight deck and say, you know, uh, I kind of build that. <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, no, that's very yeah. touching. And it, it just it just gets you to appreciate even more the hard work of these guys, you know, that the flight crew is doing uh, day in day out. Just you know, just get to understand all the amount of information and knowledge they they had to acquire just to get there, and now to do the operation uh, every day. Um, I guess yeah, it it just builds up your understanding of their of their work and the appreciation of what they do. So, yeah, Philippe. A question for you. Is there a place where our listeners can go and follow your uh, work if if they want to, so if they're interested in this topic and want to sort of follow the things you're doing, do you have like a LinkedIn or anything that they can go and follow? Yeah, I guess the best way would be on LinkedIn. Yeah, if they want okay, to excellent. search for my name, uh, yeah, that would be easy. I'll make me. sure. I'll make sure to put it in the show notes so they can follow. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. We really appreciate it. And, uh, you know, we're hoping that we can reach out to a couple more people like this. This has been really good, especially, you know, for me. I don't know about you, Woodrow, but this has been sort of really enlightening to hear that we sort of face a lot of the same challenges, even across domains. Um, and it's always nice to kind of peek behind the curtain to see what other people are doing. So thank you so much for your time, Phil. And, and uh, we really appreciate it. Thanks, Bill. All right. Talk to you soon. Bye. 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 All right, everyone. That's it for us today. Let us know what you thought of the stories this week. Did you love them? Did you hate them? Let us know. And thank you so much to Phil from Bomber J for the interview of this week. And thank you, Woodrow and Nick, for having that recorded for us. If you have any suggestions for topics or news stories you want us to cover, you can follow us across social media at H Factors Podcast. Join us. You can also join us in our Slack channel or head on over to humanfactors.com catch us on linkedin facebook or twitter check us out on our soundcloud and you can always always leave us a comment over there or send us an email at humanfactorscast at gmail.com if you're feeling saucy as nick says you can also leave us a voicemail at 901-646-1432 that's 901-646-1hfc 
You can support us on our Patreon at patreon.com slash humanfactorscast. But no worries, if you can't support us financially, please be sure to like, subscribe, and review us on Apple Podcasts, the Google Play Store, or your favorite podcast directory. Now remember, we've still got a contest going on to win a free t-shirt if you leave us a review between now and May 31st. So leave us a review on your favorite podcast medium of choice and send us an email to humanfactorscast at gmail.com with a screenshot of your review and we'll figure out who the winner is sometime this week let us know if you want a male or female shirt and what size we'll pick the winners on the 31st and get in contact with you now you guys can always also reach us at our home on the web humanfactorscast.com i want to thank our very special panel this week miss elise hallett for being on the show tonight and dealing with my you know stuttering through some of these stories elise where can our listeners find you if they want to learn more they can find me on LinkedIn. Thanks for having me. Of course. You can find Elise on LinkedIn. Just searching Elise Hallett. Check the show notes for a name spelling. And she's also in our Slack channel. Uh, and as for me, I've been your host this week, Blake Arnsdorf. I cannot wait until Nick Romitz gets back. But if you want to come and talk to me about some of my hosting skills, you can always find me across social media at Don't Panic UX. Thanks again for turning into hu- Human Factors Cast. Until next time. It depends. It depends. Spacecraft, railway locomotives, nuclear submarines, healthcare, jet aircraft, these are all examples of highly technical systems and organizations, and all have one particular thing in common. They all involve humans. Humans who want to do amazing things and are using technology to achieve them. They all have something else in common. They have amazing people ensuring that the users who are involved can do what they need to do, are safe when they do so, and have the optimum user experience. These people are Human Factors practitioners, and on 1202 The Human Factors Podcast, they talk to me, Barry Kirby, about what they do sharing their career paths, highlighting their ideas and best practices, and fundamentally raising awareness of our discipline. Find us on 1202podcast.com, on social media, and on your favourite podcast directory, because it's more than just common sense.